I've been that person several times, so no worries. <laughs> well, what a joy it is to be here today on Father's Day with all of you. And I'm so thankful um, for the grace that He has shown us and being able to gather around His Word so many times and to continue learning. If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John and chapter 5. If you're a guest with us today, so thankful you're here. And there's a Bible if you're here on the first floor. There's a Bible in the seat in front of you if you don't have a Bible. It's okay. Uh, take one of the Bibles that are, are there available for you. That's our gift to you. And you'll find 1 John close to the very end of the Bible. It's uh, right next to the book of Revelation. So go to the very back and then just turn a few pages to the left and you'll find 1 John. And we'll be in chapter 5 starting in verse... Six, we've learned over and over, and friends, I don't tire of this. Uh, some people ask me, well, does expositional preaching, doesn't that bore people? And the answer to that is yes, it bores some people, and uh, it tires some people, and we are humans and fallen, and, and it can be a struggle, but we should never tire of hearing uh, what the apostle has to say uh, about our joy, because what he writes about is real, lasting joy. Joy that is rooted in the eternal Godhead and our fellowship with Him. He writes that we might have joy, and he acknowledges this world is not full of joy. In fact, it's full of things that will seek to take away your joy. John is, in fact, writing in a world where the only hope that we might have joy is clarity in our relationship with the triune God and especially in our doctrine and our understanding and our belief of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, I can tell you this. Every generation faces a fresh and a new a, a battle to hold the biblical line of who Jesus really is. There are so many people in our generation who just want to have a reductionistic faith. Jay, as long as we love Jesus, what else matters? As long as you define who that Jesus is, that is a very fundamental understanding of the faith. But there's so many people that, that they want to redefine who Christ is and what it is that He came to do. And what we find as we walk throughout church history, and we see that this seemingly is a topic that comes up again and again and again and again, is that it's not just the people in every generation that want to redefine who Christ is, that it is the satanic forces that are at power in this world that want to obscure who Jesus actually is. It was the work of the council at Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian council that met in 451 uh, October of that year, all of these bishops and, and uh, brothers met to have an ecumenical council and a, a, a conversation about who Christ was in His person and work. And uh, Now, you have to understand, by this time, the Nicene Creed had already come into being. It was a clear declaration of who Christ is. Um, 
But there was a new emperor in town, and back in those days there, is a, there was a mixing of the political sphere and so much of the religious life, and the new uh, emperor wanted the, a, a definition, not for the sake of, I even think, obscuring, but for the sake of being able to say that he had a council under his leadership that also defined who Christ was. There was just one problem in 451. And that is that in 431, the council at Ephesus had declared that the Nicene Creed was enough and that no one should make any other uh, statements about the person and the work of Christ. You wouldn't have wanted to be a bishop at the Council of Chalcedon because you have a political ruler saying you need more clarity. And in fact, there were uh, more... um, ambiguities and false teachings that had arisen in this particular time that needed to be addressed. But then you had this church council that said, don't write any other creeds. And so what these bishops did is they said, fine, we won't have a creed. We'll just make a definition. Uh, We will just define who Christ is and what he has done. And friends, we should be thankful. I, I hear all the time, well, creeds and all of that, that just doesn't matter. Often when I hear criticism like that, I wonder if people that criticize the creeds that have come throughout church history, if they've actually even read the creeds. Uh, Because I I just would say that if you took the popular Christian thinkers of our day and you put them in a room and you said, okay, we want you to define who Jesus is and why he came, I think what we would get as a returned answer would be something far different than what the historical church has understood about the person and the work of Christ. So here we have the Chalcedonian definition. Not a creed, but a a, a definition. Because remember, there couldn't be a new creed. So they write this, and I think it's wonderful. Following the saintly fathers, we all, with one voice, teach the confession of the one and the, the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, The same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. The same truly God and truly man. Of a rational soul and body consubstantial with the Father as regards with His divinity. And the same consubstantial with us regards to His humanity. Like us in all respects except for sin. Begotten before the ages from the Father that regards His divinity. And in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards to His humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation, and at no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather... The propriety, uh, property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a sig- single substantive being. being uh, he is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same, only begotten Son of God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ just as the prophets taught from the beginning about Him, and as the Lord Jesus Himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers is handed down to us. Amen. 
He is not divided. And we know that the background to the writing of 1 John is a Gnostic heresy that does seek to divide the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Those brothers were writing that we would not be confused and that we would understand the work that Christ came to do. Well, beloved, John writes here in the same way but this time under the inspiration of the Spirit, that we would not be confused about who Christ is. Do you know what's interesting about that? His purpose is that we would have great clarity about who Christ is and what He came to do. But there are so many people that come to 1 John chapter 5, verses 6-8, through 8, and there seemingly is all kinds of confusion. And the reason for that, I believe, is because we just don't apply simple Biblical interpretive principles. So let's do that today and stand as we hear the reading of God's Word. John here writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God. Chapter 5, starting in verse 6. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is God's inerrant Word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into Your presence and we acknowledge that we are tempted to take these words far too lightly. Uh, Father, we were sold under sin and yet You sent Your Son and You bore witness about the reality that He is the Messiah. And Father, He died in our place to bear the wrath that we justly deserved. Father, the Spirit, to those of us who are in Christ this morning, bears witness that these things are true. Might they be eternally written on our hearts that we would worship You in a way that is well-pleasing to You. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. So we saw last week How really we can break this passage down into three constituent components. One, in verses 6-8, through that this is the witness, this is the testimony that is given. And then verses 9-10, through the reason that we should accept this witness. And then in verses 11-12, through the consequence of having believed this testimony. So if our joy is rooted in Christ, and that's the only way to have joy in this life, And if God has given a testimony about Christ, then I think it behooves us to pay attention and to understand this testimony and to not make it um, confusing and not to try to read things into the text that aren't there. 
what we're really focusing on today is this testimony about Christ. And what John again is doing is he's arguing for the unity of the person of Christ. Jesus is one. It is the Son of God who was born as a baby, and it was the Son of God who died on the cross, not merely a man, not merely an individual, but the God-man, the, the, the one who is both, as the Chalcedonian Creed states, both truly God and truly man, the divine being, Jesus Christ, our Savior. John is concerned here to establish the fact that Jesus is who He says that He is. He wants the church not to be taken away by false and spurious teaching, but to be uh, uh, confident of who the Messiah is, what He came to do, and that it has been accomplished. Because John knows that it is only in the confidence of the person and the work of Christ that we have hope for joy. John knows that there's not enough smoke and light machines and quirky type church nonsense to give fallen humanity joy apart from a concrete understanding of who is this Jesus. What is His work? And has it really been accomplished? And so John comes here stressing the reality of who Jesus is as the long-expected, long-awaited deliverer of His people. And he has two really emphasis reasons for this testimony. One that we can rest in. One we again see that between verses 5 and 6, there's this change in terminology. And John's very exact under the inspiration of the Spirit in the terms that he uses. At the very end of verse 5, you see that John says Jesus is the Son of God. But he doesn't just repeat that in verse 6. Now he changes and he says Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the Messiah. He's not doing this by mistake. He's doing it to grab our attention. And he's he's finishing that argument that we are overcomers only to the extent that we are in Christ, rooted in Him. And now he pivots and he says, remember, Jesus is who who He says that He is. Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the first reason we can see that he's, He's got this change in terminology and we want to rest there. But there's another phrase in verse 6 that gives us a a kind of a purpose statement to all that follows. And, And it's this, that he begins by saying, this is he who came. Now that might not sound like it's that important, but it really is. The fact that he came is laid before us as a reality in that verse, but there's something more to John writing the, the reality that Jesus is the one who has come, and that is that we would be reminded of the purpose to which Jesus came. You remember Matthew chapter 11, the Bible records, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word to his disciples, this is John the Baptist, and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another. What John the Baptist is asking is, are you the Messiah? And what John here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 is saying, yes and amen, He is the Messiah who has come. We don't need to look any further. 
So the whole thrust of the statement is in this bent and in this direction. He is the one who ultimately brought about our salvation. John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through our Savior. He is the conveyor of both grace and truth. He is the full expression of who God is in all of His truthfulness and all of His graciousness. In other words, John is not only referring to the birth of Jesus as a central issue, but he's also coming as one who brings benefits to us. He's coming into the world as the Messiah, as the Savior, and this is a clue to our interpretation of verses 6 through 8 and what we understand these three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, to be. I think it's interesting if we, if we take that this whole reality that, G, that, that what John is aiming at is that Jesus is the Messiah. Nail it down. He puts Jesus Christ together so that we would have no uh, misunderstanding that all of the prophets in the Old Testament bear witness about the coming of the Messiah. And John says, it is Jesus who is the Christ. And so if we would read... Uh, Verse 6 to something like this with a parenthetical. This is He who came, parentheses, to be the Messiah by water and blood. Then we have an understanding of the purpose of using the terms water and blood. They are to show forth that He is the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, I mentioned last week that there are many explanations to the use of the terminology, the water and the blood, and many of them become confusing. And in fact, I listened to the last part of um, my sermon last week, and I thought, well, great, I've just added to the confusion because I wasn't very clear about what the water and the blood is. So let's be clear today. Uh, Some of the explanations that have been given that the water and the blood mean uh, that which came from the side of Christ as He was pierced, uh, on, there on the cross, and, and so it's a, a picture of His crucifixion. And I don't think that that's a necessarily bad uh, interpretation, but I don't think that it catches the full-orbed understanding of what John is saying. Others would say this is, this is um, John teaching us about the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. The water being baptism and the blood being the communion or the Lord's Supper. The problem with that is there's no contextual reason to interpret this passage that way. Uh, there's no talk about the Lord's table and baptism really in the, in the near context of this passage. So those both seemingly don't fit. So the question we asked is, well, well what do these things stand for? Uh, What is John trying to get us to understand? Believing that Jesus is the Messiah, then what are these two witnesses, the water, the blood, and then the Spirit in, in the next verse? Well, first, I believe that the water is um, His baptism. Christ's baptism. And then the blood is His sacrificial death. So let's walk through that. Let's consider this 
idea that the water is Christ's baptism and the blood is his sacrificial death. The question we have to ask is, what was the Messiah, what did the Messiah come to do? What did, why did Jesus come? And this is a question that is really germane in our day. And churches will answer this not by asking the question, but by implicitly giving you the reasons why Jesus is a part of, and in many false churches, their religious system. And they preach a false Jesus. And, and they say, well, Jesus came to help us uh, set up political organizations and end, hun- uh, end hunger and, and start uh, different campaigns and, and make everything better in the here and now. But friends, John never makes that argument. Paul never makes that argument. That is not why Jesus came. The reason that Jesus came was to set us free from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. To do away with sin in our lives once and for all. If you have a need for Jesus at the core foundation, and it's something material in this world, then it's not really Jesus who is meeting that need. Because Jesus came to do away with, to, to set us free from sin. We were all under the wrath of God, all dead in our sin, all in this world without hope. We needed to be set free from ourselves. And that is why Jesus came. He came, friends, and we should be so thankful for this, to set us free. To set us free from our religious pride, our arrogance, our foolishness. And He did this by shedding His own blood. And and that's one of the testimonies. But the other testimony is the reality that He was consecrated for the, the reality of His earthly ministry in baptism. And here I want you to be reminded of two rather lengthy passages that I think are important if we are to interpret 1 John chapter, 6, chapter 5, verses 6-12 through 12 correctly. The first passage is John chapter 1, verses 29-34. through 34. Both of these are narratives of Christ's baptism. The next day He saw Jesus coming toward Him and He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is He whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because He was before me. I myself did not know Him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that He might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descended from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom the, you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And then secondly, in Matthew chapter 3, we see these, uh, this narrative. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will clear the threshing floor and gather His wheat into His barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by Him. John would have prevented Him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to Me? But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be now so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. His baptism coming through the water, was an empowerment, a declaration, a statement from Almighty God, this is my witness, this is my Son. He is the only hope for the world. John said it, that that all righteousness would be fulfilled. What righteousness? Jesus, Jesus didn't need added imputed righteousness because He was righteous through and through. So so what does that mean? Well, ultimately, it means that He identifies with you and I and with our sinful humanity by surrendering Himself to this baptism of of John. He is is dealing with uh, the, the reality that He is fully human and fully God in this particular expression. He's saying, I have come to deal with sin. There is a testimony that is born out here that He would righteously be set apart for the work that His Father had sent Him to do. I think it's interesting to note that John doesn't refer to Christ's birth in his Gospel. As we walk through the other Gospels, we see that reality. But here in John's Gospel... His attention is immediately and primarily on the baptism of Christ. It's not that His birth and His childhood and those things are not important realities. But here John cuts straight to the quick and he says, this is when Jesus, it was testified that Jesus is the Messiah and He begins His ministry. And so I think we see very clearly why we have in our phrase in 1 John, not the water only, but also the blood. Jesus didn't just deal with our sins by coming to do a moral ministry and by some sort of righteous acts, although that is part of what what He did. He lived righteously in our place. But we also see the reality that the blood was necessary. That His coming and His being set apart from ministry and and God bearing witness that this is my beloved Son in who I am well pleased began what would ultimately end in His vicarious atoning death on our behalf. Jesus didn't just come to identify with us. He came to actually deal with our sin. To shed His blood that we would have His righteousness. John, see, is not just interested in talking about his person. John's just not interested in getting the identity right. He also wants to get right the reason that he came. Why did he come? He came not for hypothetical, cute theological ideas or theoretical realities. He came to accomplish our redemption. And our redemption is a definite reality. When you come to Christ and you repent from your sins and you trust upon Him, you can know that that is something that God and God alone has done in your life. And what Jesus set out to do has been accomplished. 
It's so clear all throughout the Scriptures, and yet the church has muddied the water over and over and over. When Jesus died, did He really accomplish the substitutionary atonement that He set out to accomplish by the work that that His Father had sent Him to do? Or did He merely attempt to save people? And the answer has to be, Jesus came to fulfill all things that His Father sent Him to do. He died for a specific people. He expiated their actual sin. And it is this morning accomplished. Isn't that a joy? It's not a hypothetical. It's not a, it's not a seminary class. Our Savior really came. The Father bore witness at His baptism that this is the Messiah. And Jesus really bore the weight of our sin. Now there's another phrase here that we have to deal with in verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. What does that mean? I think that what he's saying is not only do we have confirmation at his baptism, but also in his death, and we'll get to that more in a little bit later. And then he comes and he ends with this, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. What he's saying is this is the particular testimony that the Spirit bears to us. If the Spirit is really speaking to us, He speaks. Jesus is the Messiah and He has come to take away the sins of those who trust in Him. Testimony that Christ came by the water and the blood. The question is, how does the Spirit do this? Well, we see the Spirit descending on the church on the day of Pentecost. And I'm not going to get into this in in, um, full measure. But I think some theologies um, at best distract us from what the Spirit is doing in that day. And what the Spirit is doing on Pentecost is revealing to these people who Jesus really was. And empowering them to carry that message forward. It's interesting that if, all, if, if the ministry of the apostles would, was to be what some in our day would have it to be, uh, you would think that, that all of the, um, their talking would be in that charismatic theological bent. But I think what the Spirit does on the day of Pentecost is He reveals in very real terms that Jesus is the Messiah, who He says that He is. And then the apostles take that very same message to the entire world. The Spirit bears witness that Jesus is the Christ. What an important truth for the Spirit to tell us. We wouldn't figure that out on our own. We wouldn't know that apart from the work of the Spirit. Uh, We would not have in our hearts a rejoicing over the fact that Jesus came to set us free, not from political tyranny, but from our sin, unless the Spirit had inscribed on our hearts an understanding that we are sinners who deserve the wrath of God, and it is only Christ who can set us free. Jesus, then, is the great Redeemer of the world, and the Spirit is revealing this all throughout Scripture and all throughout history. You know, one of the things that happens in political circles is they will come up with PR consultants. And I've even rubbed shoulders with these people from time to time, and they'll say this. This is one of their phrases. Stay on message. Stay on message. Don't deviate from the message. And what that means is, look, if you get into a conversation with someone about the particular political topic you're talking about, and they try and drag you away, don't go down that rabbit hole because you're going to get yourself in trouble, and you'll wind up on the 6 o'clock news saying something stupid. 
Can I tell you this? Under the authority of the Word of God, the Spirit of God has never deviated from the message. He is constant in His bearing witness of who Christ is and what it is that He has done. And He bears that witness to the entire world. We read in 1 John chapter 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the only one that can redeem. He died to pay for the sins of all of those who ultimately will turn and believe upon Him. And that world is the world that He came to save. John goes on then in verse 8 to clarify the water and the blood and the Spirit even further. He says, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. The proof of who Christ is comes from the reality that He suffered in the shedding of His blood and we identify with this reality in the waters of baptism. And ultimately, He was identified in the water of His baptism, in the declaration God made there. So then we have to ask, what is John trying to get us to understand in verse 8? What do we need to see? Well, as we begin to unpack this, these two verses, 7 and 8, I think it's important that we understand the hermeneutic Bible interpretation principle that all of the apostles speak in unison. They have a message. And and that ultimately, in our understanding of a passage that has seemingly been so convoluted and there's been so much conflation and so much struggle in understanding what is being said here by John... I think it'd be interesting. Some people would probably say, John, just say what you mean. Like, don't make this so hard to understand. And I think he would say, I did say what I mean. And and I said what all the other apostles said. And, And you should read your Bible in the entire context of the New Testament. And you should interpret my words, if they seem unclear to you, interpret them with the rest of the apostles' writing and allow the whole to interpret the 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 obscure passage. Don't interpret the obscure passage and force it onto the rest of Scripture. But we see that in the church far too often. People will take a passage like this and they'll get all kinds of ideas that you don't find anywhere else in Scripture. So if we're going to interpret verses 7 and 8, we're going to have to do it faithfully, not only under John's authorship, but under the authorship of all of the apostles because we know that they speak with one voice. So the question is, what is the message? Well, I think we can go to Acts chapter 17 and we can hear the message. The message is this, and Paul went in as was custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. The message was twofold. One, that the Messiah was a a suffering Messiah, that Jesus had to suffer. And secondly, that He was the Christ, that He was the Savior that all of the Old Testament points to. We find here John emphasizing in these three 
uh, witnesses, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, the same testimony. That Jesus is the suffering Christ, the only way that we can be saved. So how, then, did the Spirit bear testimony to the fact that Jesus was the, the Messiah? Well, John chapter 1, again, it is baptism. We read, I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, that is the Spirit, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Spirit bore witness that Jesus was who He said that He was. And then if we look at the life of Christ, if we look at His miracles, and if we look at His power, and we look at His wisdom, and we look at His meekness, uh, and we, I, I, I had, there's an interesting, some of you all might have caught on in the past couple of weeks, there's a well-known pastor, so-called pastor, who got up in front of a bunch of other pastors at a convention recently, and he said, I'm going to be like Jesus, and I'm not going to answer my detractors. And then he went on for five minutes talking about how he's the greatest thing that ever happened to the church. And what's so obvious and so painfully obvious is that men will stand, I'm going to be like Jesus, and then they act nothing like Jesus. But we look all throughout the Scriptures and we see Jesus being meek in the face of people who are who are treating Him horribly. We see Him performing miracles. We see Him doing all of these things. The question is, how does He do that? And the answer is, Because the Spirit is poured out in fullness in His life. Because He is part of the Trinity. Because He is truly God. John chapter 3, we get this reality. For He whom God has sent utters the words of God. For He gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus is full of the Spirit of God. So the Spirit bears witness through all of the works that Jesus did because Jesus doesn't do any of those things apart from the Spirit. The Spirit bore witness on the day of Pentecost. I've already talked about that. Uh, Ultimately, that is the reality all throughout the church that the Spirit bears witness to us who Jesus is. Acts chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, God exalted Him at His right hand as the leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. The Spirit's job primarily in our life is repeatedly pointing us to Jesus our Savior. He bears witness. Well, then the question is, well, how does does the water or baptism bear witness? The descent, again, of the Holy Spirit at the baptism of Christ. Matthew chapter 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the Messiah. This is the One who has come to save. This is the One who will do the work. Now this is a reality that we need to get just crushed into our minds that we forget so often. When we hear preachers telling people, you need to work harder at being a Christian, you need to try, you need to, you need to give more effort and all of the moralistic platitudes that come out of the pulpit. Friends, we need to hear that stuff as absolute nonsense because we need to realize that Jesus is the one that came to do the work and He's done it. 
There are so many people who are defeated in their Christian walk because they look internally and they see their own deficiency. But friends, if we just look at ourselves, we will constantly be cast down. But when we look there at His baptism, before He even suffers and dies for us, and we hear the Father in heaven saying, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, what He is saying is He will do all of the work. Rest in it. Isn't that a joy? That is the testimony that John wants us to have joy in this morning. I've never had so much joy over the word water in all of my life. But it is a cool drink of water to realize that our righteousness flows from Him and Him alone. I could have got a little bit more excited about that. Hold on. Then finally, how does... Christ's death on the cross bear witness. Not only the water. John's kind of saying, if the water was, was, is sufficient, that's enough, but not only the water, but also the blood. That is a testimony. Well, how does Christ's death on the cross bear witness? How does this prove that Jesus is the Christ and that He has to suffer and be killed to save us? Well, one, death is necessary for the resurrection. And we know that Paul tells us that without the resurrection, we are of, of all men the most miserable. So the death of Christ is, is responsible for establishing the foundation of demonstrating the power of Christ in the resurrection over death in the grave. It is a witness that Jesus is who He says He is. And the problem is, the Jews had a false understanding of the Messiah. In their, in their minds, as Jesus came... He came to set them uh, free politically. And friends, I think I've frustrated some of you by repeatedly saying the gospel is not uh, for political fodder. But I think that's really important. It's not that we can't be involved as Americans in our civic responsibility to vote or to to campaign or, or whatever. But it's that we as Christians first and primarily don't make the same mistake the Jews made, which is to think that Jesus came to set us free politically. Friends, what the whole of, of, of church history teaches us is that the church thrives when we don't have political freedom, but we actually have freedom spiritually in Christ. Now we can work so that our society honors God more, and I'm, I'm not pressing against that. Don't hear this, that this morning, but we, we need to be careful that we don't think Jesus came so that we can have everything the way we want it to politically here. No, Jesus came so that we would be set free from ourselves. I mean, do you remember the way that Jesus was mocked as He was suffering there on the cross? In Matthew chapter 27, we have recorded these words. And those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you really are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and the elders mocking Him said, having saved others, He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now. If he desires for him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also revealed, 
uh, reviled him in the same way. They were spitting in his face because he was not the political solution that they longed for. Friends, God forbid that we fall into the error of being ticked off at Jesus because he doesn't produce the political ends to, uh, that we want. Now what we see in the joy of the thieves on the cross is one thief who continued to revile, but the other one, the Spirit bore witness, this really is the Son of God. And you know what that teaches us? That no matter what comes circumstantially, politically, economically, providentially into our lives, even if we hung on a cross, we are blessed above all creation if merely God reveals through His Spirit that His Son is who He says He is. We have to be very careful about our understanding of why Christ came. We have to understand that Christ came to suffer. It's all of the Old Testament points to that reality. You find Jesus all throughout the, 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 the New Testament saying things like this. Have you not heard? Have you not read? The reason why I, I really desire for us to be a body that is always in the Word of God it is not just that we would fulfill some moralistic work of reading our Bible and checking the box. It's because the Son of God has revealed Himself to us through the pages of Scripture. And when He stood up, up in front of, of people who were the religious leaders of His day, He had to remind them, it's in the book. It's right there. I never promised I would come and set you free politically. I never promised that you wouldn't have difficulty. I didn't promise you wouldn't have suffering. In fact, I said that the Savior would come and He would have to suffer. And far too often we read into the pages between the lines of Scripture the Savior that we want and not the one that is really given. That Christ came to suffer. This is what the apostles preached all throughout their ministry. And you know why they preached that Jesus was a suffering Savior, that He suffered for our redemption to set us free from sin, and that He truly is the Christ. They preached that because that's what the Spirit bore witness both in His baptism and in His death and resurrection. And it's also what Jesus from His own mouth said, Luke chapter 24. Then He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day raise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name to in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The Spirit and the baptism and the death of Christ all bear witness that He is who He says that He is, friends. What does all of this mean? It means that we don't need a political hero. It means that we have everything sufficient for our eternal joy in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God has set before us every ounce of testimony that we need to rest in Him. What he's saying is don't be depressed by the death on the cross. 
It's only by dying that I could set you free. Death, the blood, is the ultimate establishment of the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Deliverer. He is the Messiah. He said to the apostles, preach it. Preach the reality of Christ's baptism. Preach the reality of Christ's death. Preach the reality of Christ's resurrection. And the Spirit will seal this in the hearts of those who Christ has come to save. Do you remember what Jesus said? As He finished the work that Christ had, that the Father had sent Him to do. The work that was ultimately identified at His baptism as God said, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the work that He carried out with agonizing obedience as He said, Father, this is not My will, but Your will be done. But yet He walked humbly to the cross under the weight of our penalty. And there, as He hung on the cross, and He bled for you, and He bled for me, we are reminded of what Jesus said about this work that He came to do and the work that the Spirit bears witness to in our day. He didn't say, I tried. He didn't say, I gave it my best. He didn't say, I hope this is enough. He didn't agonizingly give some expression that would leave anything open to chance. He said sovereignly once and for all, the work that I have come to do is finished. It is finished. All of it. All of the atoning work that needed to be done has been accomplished and it's sealed in my blood. The water and the blood and the Spirit agree about these three things. The only question that's left this morning is simply this. Do you agree with those three? Does your heart say yes and amen to the reality that Jesus is the Savior of the world? And if the answer is yes, then when we stand in a moment and we sing, don't mumble the words. Sing with everything that you have because only God could reveal that to you. Let's pray. Father God, we come to You today in weakness, knowing that we would never see anything from Your Word in the power of the Spirit without Your kindness. Father, we acknowledge the reality that we take these things far too lightly. But one day we will see not dimly, but face to face, and we will worship perfectly. Father, if there's one here today that hasn't really received these three witnesses, the water and the blood through the testimony of the Spirit, Father, I pray that You would do what only You can do and reveal that to them. Father, I pray that this week our worship would be filled and fueled by the reality of this testimony that is held before us. That we really can rejoice knowing that Your work has been accomplished once and for all. And we cannot add anything to it or take anything away from it. So let us live our lives in Your victory.